as we look at our sermon text uh, this morning, which will be Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, it's always useful to have a Bible open and in front of you as we uh, study God's Word together to examine it before your very eyes as we look at the text and what God would have you uh, understand this morning. So you can uh, grab the blue Bible that should be in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 872 is where you'll find uh, this morning's uh, text. John Owen, who's a prince of the Puritans, once said that no man, woman, boy or girl will behold Christ by sight in heaven who has not also looked upon him by faith here in this world. And one of the joys of just preaching through a gospel as we've been doing for many months now here at Redeemer, walking through uh, the gospel according to Luke, is that it's so easy every single Lord's Day to fix our attention and our heart's affection on Jesus Christ. And we want to do that in a very simple way from our text this morning, which once again is verse 10 through 21 of chapter 13. So let me go ahead and read our passage, and then I will pray for our time and and we will begin our study. So let us hear now, for God is indeed speaking to you now through his word. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Then Jesus saw her, and he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, And immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it became a tree, and it grew, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he said, again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, until it was all leavened. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? And the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, that your word unto us is full of eternal power, full of eternal worth and might. And so we pray that we would receive it as such this morning with joy and gladness in our hearts, knowing that you speak to us by your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Spirit, the word comes to us this morning, meaning to do good for us, to convict us of our sin and to lead us to Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would do that that you would take us by the hand, O Holy Spirit, and lead us to the Son, that we might know Him, that we might obey Him and love Him, and help me to preach as your word says I must, with boldness and with clarity, uh, with eternity always in view, knowing we are not promised tomorrow. So let us hear with expectation this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
You may be seated. A few years ago, a college in New Zealand commissioned a sociological study to discern and discover what is the hardest day of the week for your average person. To put more flesh on it, they asked, what is the average emotional low point, or which, which day has the average emotional low point for people? And what day do you think they came up with? Overwhelmingly, it was Tuesday. Because they found, according to these people that they interviewed and talked to, even one person said, Tuesdays are the Siberia of days. Gloomy, dreary, dreary, and altogether miserable. It's on Wednesday that they discover the average person's happiness is ignited. It reaches its high point on Saturday and slides back down to the depths to return to Tuesday at its lowest and hardest point. And I don't know if you've ever noticed before how so much of our life in an ordinary week is punctuated by how we feel about certain days of the week, looking forward to them, not looking forward to them. Have you ever noticed as you've read through the Gospels how Jesus' ministry in particular seems punctuated by his teaching and actions on a particular day? When you see Jesus doing something, saying something on the Sabbath, you know, something significant is about ready to be uncovered. Because this day, the Sabbath day, was of course the day of rest. It was a day of worship. It was a day of devotion to God. It was a day that was supposed to be most blessed in any person's spiritual life. But to find Jesus in a synagogue on a Sabbath day, as we do in our text this morning, is to know that controversy would certainly follow. Because it's always when he comes into these situations that he will say something or he will do something that offends someone. And as the story of Luke has progressed, he has increasingly offended religious leaders. And so once again, we see in our text today is a Sabbath battle royale between the Redeemer and religious leaders that he is often squaring against. And what you need to know from the outset of our study, that although the events and teaching of Christ we're looking at this morning takes place on the Sabbath, it's not properly about the Sabbath. The significance of the passage is less about the Sabbath and about the kingdom that Christ is revealing and explaining on that Sabbath day. Because remember how Jesus' ministry began in Luke's gospel. If you flip all the way back to Luke chapter 4, it was in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth on the Sabbath that he stands up, takes the scroll of Isaiah, and this is what he read, verse 18 and 19 of Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I said months ago when we looked at that passage in something of a Christological mic drop moment, Jesus said, I'm going to sit down, and this passage today has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you remember, they want to run him out of town where he grew up, because what he has just said is the kingdom of God has finally arrived in me. And from that point forward, we see Jesus inaugurating his kingdom through wondrous works, through his majestic word. And he's going to do the exact same thing again in our passage today. Because what we want to see in our verses is the great truth 
that Christ is the king of mercy who inaugurates, begins, ushers in a surprisingly majestic kingdom. He's the king of mercy, but we're also going to see in the parables at the end that the majestic kingdom advances in a somewhat surprising manner, especially to those who had first heard his teaching. So if you just look down at the passage once again, here's how I want to walk through it. In verses 10 through 17, what we see is the kingdom displayed in a miracle. And then what you'll see in verses 18 through 21 is the kingdom explained in parables. So the central motif of the passage is this merciful and majestic kingdom that Christ is bringing. And he's going to first display it with a miracle, and he's going to then explain it with some parables. So where did we leave off last week? So if you weren't with us last week, if you just scan your eyes up to the first nine verses of chapter 13... What we saw last week was really the conclusion to what seems to be one very long day of teaching in the life of Jesus that stretched all the way back to the end of chapter 11. And uh, the central thread of that teaching from 11 into 13 was the coming judgment upon sin, that Christ will return and hypocrites and those who don't turn from their sin are going to face certain judgment. So you must be ready with lives of faithfulness and watchfulness. And the conclusion that he made last week, notice verses 3 and 5, he repeated this refrain, what is the proper response to his coming return in judgment? It's repentance, you see in verse 3 and 5. He says, I tell you, if you do not repent, you will all likewise perish. So what then is, as we move back into this demonstration and declaration of the kingdom, what is always the central response of people to that kingdom according to Christ? It's supposed to be repentance, because repentance is the only way to escape Christ's judgment. And so as he displays and declares the kingdom now, we're seeing him remember he's slowly but surely on his way to Jerusalem He's fixed his face like a flint to get to the cross at Calvary. We're only weeks away from it actually happening now. And he once again, in verse 10, is found in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And we see the kingdom displayed in a miracle. And you've got three main characters. So students notice this. You've got three main characters in what ensues in the next few verses. Look at verse 11. We have first a crippled woman. Luke says, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And in subsequent centuries, recent centuries of scholarship have said that what this woman had was a, a disease called spondylitis deformans, which is something like arthritis of the spine to where the bones have fused together into this rigid mass. Uh, you need to picture this woman that was largely walking around in that synagogue and in the village wherever Jesus was at that moment, and as though as her nose was always close to her knees. So low was she bent over. And kids, I wonder if you remember the last time you got sick, or maybe the last time you had an injury, and what you thought of those few days or maybe even weeks off. You know, some of you might remember that earlier this year I'd broken my wrist in two places and my elbow in one place, and for six weeks I was in this hard cast and a sling. And to my own shame and revelation of my own sinfulness, I became very frustrated at life over those six weeks with how little I could do with my dominant hand. But imagine your nose to your knees for 18 years, never being able to stand up straight, 
Never being able to look very far in front of you because your neck can only get so far up. Never being able to enjoy the company of society for you are very much dejected and outcast in your neighborhood. The two feet on which this crippled woman was walking for the last two decades was sorrow and suffering. And there was nothing that anyone could do about it, clearly, because she still has it. Until then, she meets, notice, the compassionate Savior. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And if you remember the old King James Version translation of this text, it's somewhat famous. Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. In verse 13, he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Notice the power of Jesus Christ in this moment. He speaks, and the disease departs. He touches, and the woman is straightened. Because remember what Luke has clearly told us, and even Jesus tells us in the next few verses, that we might think this is just a merely natural disease, arthritis of the spine. But what we're told in this passage is this was a disabling spirit that was afflicting her for 18 years. If you look down at verse 16, Jesus is saying, Satan has bound her for 18 years. And with a touch and with a word, Satan is cast out. So authoritative and powerful is this king who's inaugurating the kingdom that comes to crush the serpent's head. The crippled woman meets a compassionate savior and experiences his mercy and grace and his deliverance in her condition. Joseph Parker was a popular English preacher some decades back, and one day he was preaching a sermon in City Tabernacle in London, and one of the parishioners met him at the door and said afterwards, Preacher, you made a grammatical error in your sermon. And after telling Parker the grammatical error, Parker looked him in the eyes and said, My dear friend, is there anything else that God told you in that message? And it's as though what we see next, this cranky ruler of the synagogue, has seen a miraculous display of the kingdom. And all he can see is reason to oppose and accuse Jesus because of that ruler's self-righteousness. My cranky ruler friend, is there anything else you saw in this display of my power? But of course, it's not the case. Look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to people... There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Now, I want you to see two things about the cranky ruler. First, he's quite cowardly, isn't it? Now, if you know something about synagogue rulers at this time in Jewish worship, it was their prerogative and their responsibility to basically design the order of service, the, the liturgy of the synagogue. And so if a visiting preacher, like Jesus, showed up, it was almost always because the ruler of the synagogue invited him to arrive. Jesus has interrupted the liturgy of the morning with this healing, and the ruler of the synagogue doesn't have enough courage to speak to Christ directly, because you see who he speaks to in verse 14? The crowds. He doesn't even have the courage to speak to the woman directly where he seems to rebuke her. It's passive aggression 101 on display. But what you also need to know about this ruler is not only is he cowardly, he does have a biblical conviction for his position. 
because the language that he uses in verse 14 is almost a verbatim quote of Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, which if you know your Bible well enough, that's just where Moses repeats the Ten Commandments. Verse 13 and 14, he repeats the fourth commandment on Sabbath observance. And this command to not work on six days of the week and devote one to the Lord is basically what he's calling on in this instance to rebuke Jesus. But think about what he has said just with taking the logical implications of his wording. As Jesus just healed this woman, the ruler of the synagogue, this cranky man, lifts his eyes to the congregation before him, the crowd before him, and says, hey, you need to understand, we are closed for that kind of business today. If you want to oppose Satan and tear down his strongholds, we're open for business tomorrow. But today, we worship God as if there was a better day for deliverance and restoration than the Sabbath. So kids, I want you to learn something about Jesus Christ in this passage, and you see it over and over in the Gospels, is that to tell Christ off is never a good thing. (laughs) To say his view is wrong outdated, irrelevant, not keeping in sync with modern man, is to confront an argument from the Lord that will result, notice, in your shame. Because look at what Jesus says about this man's biblical conviction in verse 15. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Notice again the language. He's not speaking directly or solely to the ruler of the synagogue. He's spread it out, clearly understanding that there are people present Maybe a majority of people present, but at least a minority that would agree with the synagogue ruler's sentiments. So see if you can understand the parallel argument he's making now in verse 15 and 16. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. So do you see kind of the, the logical argument? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser at this moment. He's saying, okay, you self-righteous hypocrites, you're focused on an ox and a donkey on the Sabbath. And you're upset that I'm focusing on a daughter of Abraham. You are focused on physical needs of animals on the Sabbath, and rebuking me because I focus on the true spiritual condition of this woman revealed in her physical ailment. You, hypocrites, self-righteous people, are worried about letting loose your animal from their stable when I am concerned with letting loose a heart from the grip of Satan. Who is truly honored the Sabbath day? What Jesus is saying, of course, is such work of necessity Such work as our confession would say of of mercy is thoroughly appropriate on the Sabbath. And so again, to tell Jesus off never goes well, does it? Look at verse 17. As Jesus said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. You see the word that's mentioned three times in verse 17? all. It's it's hinting at the completeness, the the fullness of Christ's mission as he brings the kingdom. That this kingdom is coming with Jesus Christ and what's going to happen as a result. All his enemies are going to be put to shame. All his people will glorify him. 
as they behold all of his good works and mercy and power for his people. Now what you even need to see it is something hinted at that we talked about a couple weeks ago at the end of chapter 12 is the coming kingdom that Christ brings is a divisive one because it's going to divide people. Some people will reject it unto their shame and judgment. Others will receive it unto their salvation and joy. And so the simple question meant, or you are meant to ask even yourself from verse 17 is have you rejected it? Are you rejecting it unto your shame and final judgment? Or are you receiving it in joy unto your salvation? He has displayed the kingdom in a miracle. And now he means to explain it in two simple parables. Look at verse 18. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? I'm sure you know how sometimes someone will ask you to describe a person or a location or something, and it's difficult to grasp or find words that can communicate the fullness of that person or that place or that thing. You know, think about it, children. If I was to ask you at the door today as you leave, hey, describe to me the state of Texas. You know, what words would you use? It may kind of feel like, what shall I compare Texas to? How shall I explain this great state of ours? And Jesus is kind of saying the same thing with this kingdom. And what even is the connection between these parables and what has just happened in the miracle? Because most of the time throughout church history, as people have preached these passages, they've preached uh, this miracle and these parables as distinct from each other, when in reality, if you look again at verse 18, they're connected. He said, therefore, or your other translations might say, he said, then, So what's the connection between parables about the kingdom and the healing on the Sabbath? I think the connection is, as he, as it was prone to happen in Israel, reveals the kingdom in his powerful healing ministry, that people were going to get very excited, here comes the kingdom, liberation from oppression. Here comes healing from diseases, removal of all infirmities. I think he wants to correct that notion. Because the kingdom's advance, while certainly true, doesn't look exactly like that. So he said, therefore, two parables of the kingdom. And in 1945, a German theologian by the name of Helmut Thielicke stood in a church in Hamburg, Germany, to preach a sermon. And if you know anything about Hamburg, Germany during that time, it had been ravaged and devastated by bombing raids in World War II. So surrounding this church building was a city that he loved that lay in ruins. And he started off his sermon by calling down, in many ways, uh, calling down torrents of judgment upon Christians that had gone forth in the previous 50 years or so that had this kingdom-minded optimism for the direction of the world, and he decried them as nothing more than dreams and delusions. And then he said this towards the end of his sermon, who can still believe today that we are developing toward a state in which the kingdom of God reigns in the world of nations, in culture, and in the life of the individual? The earth has been plowed too deep by the curse of war. Where in the world, which is increasingly being turned into a valley of tears, contrary to the plan of God, where in the world can even the slightest trace of the kingdom of God be found. Well, Jesus wants you to know where it can be found. And maybe you've missed it 
because you're looking in the wrong place. Because first he gives us a parable of the kingdom's extensive growth. Look at verse 19. The kingdom is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So you get the idea, right? You know, kids, think about it. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, the other Parallel passages in the Gospels talk about how tiny this mustard seed is. It's just a little grain in, in your hand. And from that comes this mustard tree that is so much larger than what it started out as. And it would have been striking for the original audience to hear Jesus say, well, there are going to be birds in this mustard tree that is representing my kingdom. Because mustard trees are often kind of hollow in their foliage. And so you couldn't get many nests in there. And so people have wondered, well, what did Jesus mean by birds in the mustard tree? Because birds never normally were in mustard trees. Well, it could mean an allusion to the Old Testament prophets which talk about the reception of the Gentiles into God's kingdom like birds in a tree. Or it could be just a sign of how large this kingdom is going to grow. That just as it seems crazy for birds to be in a mustard tree, so will this kingdom encompass the world. So it's a parable of the kingdom's extensive growth. Then look at it Next, in verse 20 and 21, it's a parable of the kingdom's intensive growth. Look at verse 20. Jesus says again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? The kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. I don't know if you're like me when I read passages that have these ancient systems of measurements. I always want to know exactly what it correlates to and in our modern times. So I went to the experts this week. Three measures of flour. Okay, how much flour is that? Because Jesus seems to want to illustrate something important with the three measures of flour. Well, the first commentator I pulled off the shelf said, well, it's just a bushel of flour. Well, that's not any more help to me than three measures of flour. So I pulled the next commentator off, and it said, 128 cups of flour. Well, I guess that's, it's more modern, but I still have no idea what 128 cups of flour looks like. So off came the next commentary, and it said, well, it's like 15 five-pound bags of flour. Okay, well, that's more helpful. Think of going to a grocery store and see 15 five-pound bags of flour all added up. But then I pulled the next one off, who said, you need to think about its weight. So in the ancient world, if you took three measures of flour and mixed in the required amount of water, which was 41 cups, you would result with, or what you would get, is a lump of dough that was 101 pounds, give or take, a couple pounds. So imagine bench pressing this gigantic load <laughs> of flour. And what Jesus is saying, it's like a baker. The kingdom is like a baker. It takes a little piece of sourdough, that's what they would have used as leaven, and hides it in this 101-pound mass of dough. And eventually, it leavens. It intensifies out to the whole thing. It permeates the whole thing. So this is the kingdom that is coming. What you need to understand, it comes much more imperceptibly than people tend to think it does. But Christ's majestic kingdom is surprising in its power. It will encompass the whole world, he says. It's surprising also in how pervasive it is. It will leave nothing untouched. This is the king of mercy who brings this kingdom of surprising majesty. So what Jesus is meaning to do in this synagogue on a Sabbath is set people straight, literally. He's setting a woman straight. But doesn't he also mean to set us straight? Set his hearers straight about the nature of this kingdom that he's bringing. 
So as we begin to close, what I want to do is just pull out three threads, if you will, from this story about Christ, this king of mercy, and his, his kingdom of majesty, and see if we can weave together a portrait of application that I believe we're meant to see this morning. Because what we need to know, first of all, need to see, first of all, is once again that Christ has sovereign mercy for the suffering. Christ has sovereign mercy for the suffering. Do you see that with the woman? He comes into the synagogue. She's there, probably seated in the corner where she was only allowed to be. And we're not told that she ever lifted up her voice to ask for healing. We're not told that she ever interacted with another person. Hey, can you go tell this Messiah that I'm, that I'm disabled and have been so for 18 years? It doesn't appear that she has done anything, said anything, thought anything to earn the restoration of what happens. Jesus sees her need, speaks to her, touches her, and she's restored. You need to understand that this is a majestic picture of salvation, the sovereign mercy of Christ in Scripture. Because you might be in here today and you're not a Christian. What the Bible says is you are disabled from birth by a disease called sin. You are set over, paralyzed in your heart, bound to the judgment that your sin deserves. And there's absolutely nothing you can say, think, or do that will cause this king to look on you. But his mercy and love and grace towards sinners like you is that he looks on you and touches you and speaks to you and restores you because he came and lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose again victoriously from the grave. And even now, he means to touch you this morning by his word and spirit that you might be made straight in your soul before him. So I ask again, have you rejected this king? Are you rejecting this king unto your shame and judgment? Or do you see his sovereign mercy freely given to sinners like you and me and are receiving it by faith and repentance unto joy and salvation? And perhaps you already have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Oh, what a comfort it ought to be for those of you in here who are suffering. The mercy and compassion and kindness of this king toward those who need help and no one else can do anything about it. You might even be silently sitting here in the midst of hardship that no one else understands and you can trust from this text that Jesus knows it, that he sees it, and he means to comfort you in it because he has sovereign mercy for the suffering. And secondly, you need to see that he has strong hostility toward the self-righteous. I hope it struck you as you, we've walked through Luke and we're gonna see it again, that Jesus has these kind of two common responses to the people that he meets when he comes to the dejected and the downtrodden, the suffering, the wayward and the weary, there's mercy. Sovereign grace. But when it comes to the self-righteous hypocrites, it's the total opposite, isn't it? It's strong hostility. And what you need to know is this is the last time in Luke's gospel that Jesus is found in a synagogue on a Sabbath. In Luke's gospel, a synagogue on the Sabbath is a sign of opposition to Jesus Christ. Why is he so opposed? Have you asked this question before? Why is he so opposed to self-righteous hypocrites? Could it be that we don't understand how Self-righteousness robs Christ of all his glory. I know enough. I'm wise enough. I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. What do I need Jesus for? And such is the state of these religious leaders as Christ comes into their midst, into their synagogues on the Sabbath day. What need do we have of you? And yet he came to seek and save the lost. I would dare say it's something of a terror in my life to have Christ come into a church that I'm pastoring and say, strong hostility. 
not sovereign mercy is what this people needs. I don't think that's true of us, but may we pray for the Spirit that such self-righteous inclinations in our own heart and hypocrisy in our own souls might be put off by the Spirit's power, lest we face this strong hostility when we think we were ready to welcome Him. And then the final thing you need to see is the surprising prosperity of Christ's kingdom. I think that's what he's after with these parables, the surprising prosperity of his kingdom. The people in his time are looking for a kingdom that's going to come in pomp, power, and prestige. It's going to be noticeable for everyone to see. It's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and restore the nation of Israel to prominence once again. And Jesus says, no, no. That's much more like a little piece of sourdough and a 101-pound loaf of bread, a little mustard seed that grows into a tree that encompasses many birds. So what encouragement I hope that ought to mean to you. Because so often in the world in which we live in, it's a day that despises small things, even in the words of the prophet Zechariah. Surely the kingdom is much more than gathering to worship the Lord on the Lord's day. Surely the advancement of the kingdom is much more than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need it. Surely the kingdom is advancing in a much more powerful way than through the simple faithfulness and obedience of God's people. And what Jesus is saying is, no, it's through that faithful ministry, through such obedient lives, through such simple love for the Savior, that the King of mercy is going to build his kingdom of surprising majesty. And I wonder if you're in it today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a God of mercy for the downtrodden and for the disabled. That Christ came to us to begin a kingdom that is full of mercy and majesty and we pray that you would welcome all of us into it by faith and repentance. And so work within us hearts of purity and holiness before you. Help us to love you, to serve you, and to even bow before you giving all glory unto your name with hearts of godliness and righteousness, clinging to Christ alone and loving His kingdom in which we have been invited into. And help us to love and long for that kingdom's full appearing. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us.